and I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to my alchemical bromance. This is Eric Arneson, and in this episode, I don't have a guest. It's just me. It's a solo show. Things got a little... Things got a little weird recently. Um, anybody who's been listening to the show for a while knows that I have... That I had a pet cat named Kublai Khan. He showed up every once in a while on the show when I was interviewing somebody remotely. Usually loudly with a meow or an attack or something like that. Well, he passed away a few days ago. He was almost 19 years old. And it kind of caused me some emotional distress, so I uh, rescheduled some of my interviews. Things got delayed a little bit. Everything's been a little slow and weird lately with the podcast, which resulted in me having a big gap. You know, having promised two episodes in January and only delivering one, I decided that it was probably a good time for me to do a solo show. So I want to first say that Kubla was an incredible cat, a giant orange monster. He, uh, he was with me his entire life. And I'm not the only My Alchemical Bromance host to have pets. You guys have also been introduced to Matt Anthony's dogs, probably the most significant being Barley the Witch Dog, who's showed up on a number of episodes. So Kubla, you know, he had a really long period of decline. I, I hadn't, I did, I wasn't totally aware of how old he was until my vet sent out an email saying that they digitized all of the records and could you please go and double check your pet's records? I went on there. I was stunned to see that Kubla was born in the year 2000. Kubla was born when I was still an entered apprentice Mason and, uh, He's been he's been with me the whole time. Um and so it's funny, you know, watching a pet in decline. You know, they you know, the the responsibility of the pet owner to figure out when to put the cat to sleep is a heavy one and a difficult one. And it's not an easy decision to make and it's not easy to know if you are being selfish. Like do you want the pet around longer? Is the pet in too much pain? Uh, the pet doesn't really have the ability to tell you, you know, it's time. You can spend a lot of money keeping an old pet alive. And so it was something that I really had to keep an eye on, you know. Kubla made it pretty obvious when his time was up. But it also makes you think, you know, as a student of the Western mystery traditions, you know, one of the things that we're really focused on is sort of understanding the unseen parts of the world, the unseen nature of creation, like the the side of the universe that isn't necessarily here for us to study empirically and measure with instruments and 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 know uh with the same sort of epistemology that you have when you're talking about like cardboard and eggs and you know, steel girders, like, do animals have souls? Did Kubla have a soul? Is there still a Kubla soul? Why sometimes now, why do I have dreams about him? 
why do I have those times where I'm like, did I just hear Kubla meow? Did I just feel Kubla's purr? Like, are these echoes of my own memory, or are they echoes of Kubla's soul in my memory? Where do those come from? What significance do they have? What significance do they have to me, aside from just bringing up emotion and bringing up feelings that I have to deal with? And it was weird. You know, Kubla... I, you know, when thinking about the question of Kubla's soul, I also have to think about, like, my conduct towards him. He was a cat. He was sometimes not a very intelligent cat, frequently a very violent cat. And, and for the last part of his life, I had to keep him inside because he was, he was allergic to so many things outside that he was just sick all the time. He hated being inside, and it made me feel like a jailer. Did I have a right to jail him? Did he understand why he was being kept inside? Like, when he was sick, he was extra violent, and I have scars on my hands that I will bear for decades, if not the rest of my life, that are a testament to Kubla's violent nature when he was allergic and sick. Um, he never seemed to mind the fact that he drew blood or scratched and bit, but I certainly did. He certainly seemed content being inside after a while, but at first it was howling. It was he, he, constant escape attempts. Like, I, I was his jailer. I was his jailer for the last part of his life. And I don't know how okay that is. I decided maybe one of the best things to do to come to grips with with these feelings I have towards Kubla and uh, my relationship with my violent giant orange cat was to sort of look at how different traditions and religions and mystical paths have have looked at the soul do animals have souls what's the structure of an animal soul compared to a human soul these aren't going to be complete notes this isn't a this isn't an exhaustive exploration of the tradition of examining the soul in Western mystery tradition, but there are a lot of places here where you as the listener can get curious and perhaps jump off and explore more. I started to go, I decided to go all the way back to ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt had this concept of cats being divine, like cats were treated as divinity. They had gods, they had cat gods, probably the two most popular or most well-known being Sekhmet and Bastet. Uh, Sekhmet was the fierce lioness, and Bastet was more of like a domestic cat god, uh, goddess. Uh, and they were popular. They were very popular. The, the, uh, Sekhmet was a um, was in some ways like a mirror of uh, Hathor, who was one of the most popular goddesses in Egypt. There are more temples to Hathor than any other goddess. But there are other older cat goddesses in Egypt. Um, I don't know very much about them, but some of the names are Mafdet, Muit, and Nath. They were older than Bastet, older than Sekhmet, and I'm not sure how much we've even found out about them. But we do know that cats were seen as so important that they were mummified. They were mum then we've, we've found hundreds of thousands of mummified cats 
in archaeological digs in Egypt. In fact, there's some record, there's a record in Victorian times of upwards of 180,000 cats being shipped back to England in one shipment to be ground into um, pigment. Mummy brown is a very popular paint pigment at, at one time. So I'm not sure how the ancient Egyptians looked at the souls of animals. But we definitely... The animals were definitely shown to personify uh, parts of our soul. And sometimes animals were sort of the divine manifestations of God's souls. Uh, the human soul was looked at having many parts. I think nine different parts. Uh, the two most important being the ka, which was our double, um, and was sort of bound to the body in a way. It was, uh, I guess, maybe the equivalent of what we we might look as look at as a ghost today, like the the remnant shell of. Uh, of an individual that sort of wanders around continuing to look like that individual. And the second part being the ba, or the personality, that was usually represented as a human-headed bird that would fly back and forth between the ka and the underworld. So I guess I didn't really explain where I am right now. Uh, after Kubla died, my parents were in town that weekend, and I decided to go with them and get out of town for a little while. So, I don't really have my entire library here, but I brought a couple books with me to kind of read and pass the time and encourage some deep thought. I brought uh, Timaeus by Plato and uh, Asclepius, The Perfect Discourse of Hermes Trismegistus. Timaeus is an interesting book, and it deals a little bit with the soul. It's a, it's a, uh, a dial one of Plato's dialogues that deals with sort of the it's a creation story. It talks about the structure of the universe, the structure of creation. It sort of in introduces the the divine nature of gods, the way that people are put together and souls happen, um, and it describes this uh, this vast creator god. I think it's the Demiurgos, although this translation doesn't seem to use that word. And the Demiurgos, or the creator, goes forth and makes and, and, and puts the universe in motion, you know, sets the universe turning or the cosmos spinning and makes all of the various parts of it, makes the gods and all of this stuff. And then finally, with the leftover parts of creation mixes it all up to create the souls. But at this point, the leftover elements that are used to create souls are no longer pure. They're sort of mixed with the impure, and they're two or three generations removed from the pure substance of the creation of the universe. So in this, there's sort of a... In, the, in Timaeus, there's a, a fixed pool of soul from which all of us share. Everything that is able to move itself has a measure of soul. Our goal, it seems, according to Timaeus, is to exercise our portion of soul and to make it as good as possible. And according to how good we do or how fit we are in exercising the goodness of soul uh, determines where our portion goes after the body dies. So this is 
metempsychosis or the transmigration of souls or you might even or or maybe a type of reincarnation and it's a concept that that plato uh explores in his other dialogues but since i didn't bring any of those with me i'm not going to talk about them i'm just going to say in timaeus it talks about how if you do a bad job your your soul during metempsychosis probably won't be in another human or return to the ultimate source of good, but will be instead reincarnated or uh, or transformed into an animal body. I can see this with Kubla. I mean, I don't want to speak too ill of the dead, but he was kind of a jerk. Perhaps I could see this. Perhaps I could write this off as... Kubla's soul once belonged to a complete jerk of a human, and uh, him being some sort of giant, fluffy, allergic orange cat was a period of uh, punishment, or you know, another wheel on the, another go around on the wheel of uh, karma and cosmic justice. But I don't know. I don't know. The, this concept, though, of the soul being like the animating principle, and the thing that allows self-moving creatures and self-moving matter to be alive uh, recurs. So we're going to see that again. We're going to go ahead now to Hermeticism. So I've written about this before. I have an article on the Arnomancy website that I'll link to in the show notes called um, The Immortal Soul in Hermeticism. I think that's what it's called. There will be a link in the show notes. But the Corpus Hermeticum in, in Book 12, there's a it talks about the soul. It says that everything that can move itself, everything that is ensouled, has an immortal part. But humans are special. So animals have soul, have an immortal part of the soul. Uh, anything that can move has an immortal part of the soul. But humans have an additional responsibility in that we also share a divine nature. And this divine nature is sort of outlined a little bit in the in the first book of the Corpus Hermeticum, the Poimandres, where the divine man or the archetypal man or the original man, godlike part of man, descends into nature to be its caretaker. But also throughout, so in the in book thirteen of the Corpus Hermeticum, it talks about the Athanatosoma or the immortal body which is a divine fire that cloaks the soul and allows it to travel anywhere it wants. And again, in Hermeticism, we get this concept that anything that moves itself is ensouled and has some element of soul to it, which means that animals do have souls, at least according to the Corpus Hermeticum. All right, so let's look at a more modern branch of uh, Western mysticism. Uh, let's look at Kabbalah. Kabbalah spends a lot of time building on the concept of what the soul is. There are a number of uh, Hebrew words that are used to describe the soul, including nefesh, ruach, neshama, and yechida. Now, everything that's alive has a nefesh. It means animals have a nefesh. Humans have a nefesh, and perhaps even plants have a nefesh. And this is sort of the baseline living soul. Now, the nefesh is is the source of uh, 
the Yetzer Hara, or the uh, the evil inclination, or the inclination towards pleasure. And this is a um, this is a foundation, or a uh, a whisper, or even a loud voice that we always hear that tells us to do things that make us feel good. Uh, many of which are not necessarily good; they just bring us pleasure, right? So, you know, eat and eat and eat, or have sex and have sex and have sex, or you know, do things that that bring that bring physical gratification. So it's important to remember that, like everything, animals, humans, and plants, all have a nefesh, and and uh, and because of this, a yetzer hara. But this doesn't mean that everything is evil. It just means that that life seeks ease and pleasure for itself. Now the next part of the soul is the ruach, and the ruach is the emotional mind or the emotional part of the soul. And this is the thing that you see outlined... Well, it, it's emotion, anything that can feel emotion. So we know that humans can feel emotion, because you feel emotion, listener, and I feel emotion. We suspect that animals feel emotion, maybe not in the same way that humans do, maybe not in the same capacity, maybe not with the same nuance, but there's definitely some kind of emotion felt by animals. Um, some of the examples you'll see when you read Kabbalistic texts, is, or even in the Bible, is stuff like uh, if you take eggs from a chicken, the chicken gets upset. If you, uh, and that's why there are like uh, rules in kosher slaughtering about um, uh, not slaughtering an animal in front of another living animal, not um, not slaughtering a uh, a kid before you slaughter uh, the 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 goat or whatever you know. So there are these rules that all have to do with the fact that. Animals probably have ruach, or an emotional part of the soul. Next is the neshama. Neshama? I might be saying this wrong. But this is a part of the soul that uh, relates to a higher function or a higher divine function in, in mankind. And this is where, this is where the, the line exists, that, that animals probably don't Pro might have a neshama, but they might not. The the neshama is the human inclination to do good and to practice goodness. Uh, this is this is developed. You know, we if if some kabbalists say that that we don't automatically get the neshama. This might be something that is vestigial in us or or undeveloped, and we need to work. You know, our goal as uh, as mystics or as good people or as humans is to develop the neshama and to make sure that it is fully grown and fully fleshed out. Uh, and this is done by listening to the yetzer hatov, or the inclination towards good. This is sometimes described as the still small voice. It is the little whisper that always urges you towards goodness, even in the face of the screaming nefesh, you know, which might be saying like, you love ice cream, eat the last piece of ice cream, while the Yetzer Hatov might be saying, no, save that last of ice cream for your petulant younger brother who didn't get any ice cream yet, or, you know, something of that nature. Uh, next is the Chaya, which is uh, sort of translated as life or livingness, and this is usually described as a special part of soul that only humans have, that is that is uh, 
our um, our sort of heritage uh, uh, as uh, descendants of Adam Cadmon or uh, Adam and Eve, you know, where uh, God during the process of creation breathed Chaya into Adam. Um, and this is a this is a feeling of like livingness or it's 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 our divine nature. And then finally, the highest level of the soul, which might not even be describable as a level of the soul, is Yechida. Yechida. <laughs> uh, which is a type of a unity soul. Or it's not, uh, we don't think of it as being dissolved, like a unity as in, you know, the mystical, uh, dissolution into oneness, but it's more like, it's the level of, at which we can recognize our divine connection to all of creation. It's the point from which all souls descend and all souls come, and possibly the place to which all souls return when they are gone, if they do not develop their chaya. So in Kabbalah, you can see that there is an animal soul. We have a, we have a responsibility towards part of the animal, towards the the nefesh and the ruach that the animal might have within it or that might move the animal. And that makes you wonder when you look at, you know, this is something that you should ponder when you interact with the animals around you, when you interact with um, your pets or your food animals or anything like that. You know, what is the responsibility that you have towards them? You know, the the ruach is there and the and if it is well if you do see it you know is it something that is observable can you feel it can you interact with it you know we have this tendency as humans to anthropomorphize to uh project our own emotions or or human like traits onto things that are not human so, for instance, you know, what we might interpret in a dog as loyalty might not be loyalty in the dog. It might be a pack instinct that is entirely part of the dog's nefesh. Um, because the dog knows that by being in a strong pack, it will survive. This is a tendency towards good, towards, towards pleasure and success in the physical instead of, uh, any sense of like, pride in loyalty or pride through um, honesty and loyalty that you get in the Ruach. So, so you know, when I, when I think back at Kubla, when I think back and look at, you know, what he wanted, you know, his desire to escape wasn't necessarily like a Ruach longing for freedom as much as it might have been a Nefesh looking to expand its territory or expand its its ability to like steal food from other cats or its ability to, you know, mark more land or whatever. Like it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I, I don't know. You know, you anthropomorphize animals and you don't know when you do it and you can't tell if you're doing it or not because I'm honestly not an expert in animal behavior. You know, it's, it's a tough, it's tough to draw a conclusion. I don't know that I have a really good conclusion to give you. You know, like I said at the beginning of this episode, it's kind of an exploration of, like, this idea of the soul. We deal with it a lot in the Western mystery tradition. It's something that that nobody really, you know, it's not something that you can ever measure. It's, it's experienced through 
you know, personal revelation. It's experienced through contemplation and and inner exploration. And it's not something that you can always easily communicate to the people around you. You know, I mean, you yourself might undergo a series of trances and visions that give you insight into the soul that no other uh, mystic or magician or or witch has ever had, right? You might see part of the soul that we don't. You might divide it up in ways that we don't. Yeah, I guess what I would say is you should go forth and explore. Don't be afraid of souls, though. I think that's an important thing. You know, it's it's tough losing losing a pet. You know, this is the first time since 1995 that I haven't had a pet, and I've lost two really dear pets um, over the last six years. And, uh, and I don't plan to get another one, but I'm not doing it to dodge the confrontation of or to dodge the pain of loss. You know, I mean, that's not necessarily what I'm worried about. I'm mostly worried about the, the pain of responsibility, you know, or the, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different experience. I'm having a different experience, but, um, I miss my cats. They were great. They were my companions. You know, they kept me company. They sat with me when I wrote, they woke me up in the morning when it was time for food. They helped me in my practice, you know. Both of them enjoyed sitting me with me when I meditated or hanging out with me when I was doing ritual. You know, I think I've talked before about how Kublo woke me up in the middle of the night after I performed a, a dream ritual out of the Greek magical papyri and at first, I was sort of like, oh, Kublo, why did you wake me up? But then I realized that I just had these incredibly vivid dreams, and I wrote them down. So he was part of the success of that ritual. I, why? I don't know. Is it? Did he know? Or did he not know? Was he just a jerk, and he liked waking me up in the middle of the night? It, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. My Alchemical Bromance will be back with guests, and interesting interviews, and interesting stuff. I have a lot of interviews set up for February. Uh, we've got plenty of things coming up. We haven't run out of material or run out of steam. We just had to take a little bit of a break while while I was first beat up by the holidays and then beat up by uh, the passing of my cat. So stay tuned. Come back soon. Remember that you can support us on the Arnomancy Patreon uh, for a dollar a month. There will be a link in the show notes. And you can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, on any of those sorts of things. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode, or at least that it made you think, that it got you curious, and that it's going to get you looking into this sorts of stuff. And please, if you have thoughts, feel free to share them. Thank you, and good night. Thank you.